I've got an hour and five minutes. I am. Um, I want to speak uh, this morning about uh, what has become a very antiquated word in Christian circles. It's the word holy. Actually, a word we don't use too often anymore. And uh, I've often wondered why, because um, the Bible speaks about us being holy, like He is holy. And uh, I think people have... Uh, sort of a vague idea of what holiness is. I think probably most of us know it means to be separate or separated. It means to be different. And, uh, and then people have got some really weird ideas about holiness as well. And, uh, for example, I could say to all of you, you look very holy this morning. And you do, by the way. Then there's another word that I want to, to tie onto that, and it's the word learning, how to be holy. And, and when we speak about learning, we're talking about the process of, of being educated in something, the process of learning to be able to do something. So, for example, I'm learning to play the guitar at the moment. And uh, I can look at all these maestros on the stage and how well they can play, and I can grab my guitar and say, I'm just going to be like them. And guess what? It's not true. There is a process of learning I need to go through to be able to become like they are. So when we come to the Bible, you discover that when we speak about holiness, I want to talk a little bit about that this morning, there is also a process that begins to take place in us where we learn to become holy. Now, if we can put up the next slide, Philippians chapter 1, Paul makes a rather interesting statement uh, as he writes to the Philippian church. He says this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's your part. That's my part. Here's God's part. For God is at work within you, both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Or if you want, I like the, the NLT version. It says, for God is working in you, giving you the desire to obey him and the power to do what pleases him. Very interesting scripture. If we go on to Ephesians chapter 3, we've got an even more interesting scripture where Paul's uh, in his... In, in what he's saying about God, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. Put those two scriptures together and you've got the power and the presence of creator God in every person who's a believer this morning so that we can work out with fear and trembling the works of God in us. That means right now, every one of us has the work of the Spirit happening to give to us the desire and the power of God to be able to do, can we do something about that? What is pleasing 
to Him. In other words, very simply, you should see an evidence of what God's doing in your life. You should see an evidence of what God's doing in my life. I should see an evidence of what God is doing in your life. That's fundamentally what it means. Now, when we come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and this has all been a little bit of introduction, when we come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we discover what it means to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Paul uses a very fancy word that some of you may know. It's called being sanctified. Some of you heard that word before? Do you know what sanctified means? It's the process of becoming holy. That's what the word sanctified means, which he said is God's will for our lives. So let's read that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are now living. Now we ask you and we urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know that what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, it is God's will that you be sanctified. And then he begins to talk about what that is. That you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his body, his own body, in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we've already told you and warned you, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his holy spirit. So you'll notice he's been talking about holiness in the context of our sexuality. But then he goes on and he says in verse 9, Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we are urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. In other words, love each other as brothers and sisters more and more. And then he goes on and he says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands just as we told you. Listen to this so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. So what Paul is doing is really helpful over here. He's describing our Christian conduct, or if I can, the word holiness and what it looks like in different contexts. He's describing what it means to be holy in our sexuality. He's describing what it means to be holy in our relationships. He's describing what it means to be, how, what it means to be holy in the context of an unbelieving world. Those are the three contexts in which he talks about holiness. So let's start with the first one. Holiness in the context of our sexuality means sexual purity. Irrespective of the fact that we're living in immoral or an amoral culture today. That's what holiness looks like in our culture. It doesn't matter how over-sexualized it is. Holiness is expressed in our 
sexual purity. Now, because the Thessalonians were, were brand new believers, you know that Paul only spent about three weeks to a month in, in Thessalonica before he had to flee because of persecution. He wants to address one of the big issues. It's one of the big issues they faced. It's one of the big issues we face. What kind of conduct does God expect of them in a very, very powerful culture of sexual immorality that they, they were living in? And you remember, you can see the verse that's on the screen, verses 3 and 4. We should avoid sexual immorality, learn to control our own bodies. In other words, what Paul is saying, every believer faces the same temptations they do as they are believers as they would before they became believers. We all face sexual uh, temptation. But they're not to get sucked right back into another one of the devil's schemes because of what God has done in their lives. Now, I thought what may be helpful is for us to understand a little bit of the culture in which these, these Thessalonians were living because it might sound as like they were way away from the kind of culture we're living in today. I want to show you today that they, they, the culture we're living in today is very similar to the culture they were living in. In fact, uh, David Pawson makes some very helpful comments about their culture. You'll know that um, Thessalonica was strongly influenced by Greek culture, and, 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 and one of the Greek philosophers put it, puts it like this, very interesting. We have prostitutes for pleasure, mistresses for day-to-day -day needs of the body, and wives to beget our children. And marriage was regarded as very low by the Greeks. The Roman culture of the day was much the same. This is what one of the Romans said. We marry in order to get divorced and get divorced in order to marry. Many of the Jews were no better off in their culture. Some of the lax rabbis would say this, if your wife burns the breakfast, if she has a loud enough voice for her neighbors to hear, you can divorce her. That's dinkum. Now you know why in Matthew, some came to Jesus and said, is it okay to get divorced for any and every reason? That's what they're talking about here. So Christianity brought a fresh approach, a wonderfully different approach to the way people conducted themselves in this kind of culture, in this kind of society. It's, it's an approach that honors people. It, it recognizes that people are special because they're created in the image of God. Or may I put it to you like this? Christianity does not use people for pleasure. Christians don't take what doesn't belong to them. Christians always lift the standards when they are around. They resist the attempts of the enemy to destroy what God has intended to be good. Our sexuality is good in the sight of the Lord. It's the devil that's ruined it. And when we fall into that trap, we do the same. Christians are able to see the sordid side of what the devil's trying to do because he's deceptive. They easily identify his lies and deception. And they help other people to do that as well. May I say to you this morning, holy living honors marriage. Holy living honors sexual purity. 
holy living honors the fact that God made us sexual beings. Holy living honors God's image in other people. That's why the Bible says, and I'll just touch on the Ephesians 5 verse for now. You can see the 1 Corinthians scripture, it's there as well. But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed. Because these are improper for God's holy people. Do you know that it's these kind of instructions that save us from being drawn right back into the age-old schemes of the devil all over again? They're not there to rob you of fun. They're there to protect you from the schemes and plans of the enemy. Now, Paul spends quite a lot, you'll notice when I was reading, he spends quite a lot of time or quite a lot of attention on this subject because it was such a big issue in the day, and it's still a big issue for us today. But his instruction that he gives you, I found hugely helpful. Listen to what he says. Learn how to control your own body. Now, the reason Paul puts it like this is very, very helpful. He says, although God sets us free from the power of sin when we come to faith in Christ, old patterns of behavior need to be replaced by new ways of living. That make sense to you? You see, if we put it in very simple terms, we not only repent, but we need to replace. We repent of the way we lived before the Lord, and we have forgiveness. But then it's not automatic that I become perfect after that. It's then I need to unlearn my bad behavior, and I need to relearn the way to live within the context of our society. That makes sense to you? Now, you'll notice that Paul said this was, the Thessalonians were a very loving, warm uh, group of Christians but he encourages them to love each other even more than what they were. And here's the reason for that. Holiness always expresses itself in the way we relate to other people. It prioritizes Christian love. That's what holiness does. It's always focused on Christian love. Now about brotherly love. What's brotherly love? It's the kind of love that exists between Christian, in a Christian family. That's what he's talking about. And you know that one of the main characteristics of genuine or authentic Christianity is Christian love. 1 John 3. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Christian love is not based on biology, that you are physically family. It's not based on gender, and it's not based on race. It's based on Christ. It is the one relationship that is far deeper than any other relationship that we have in the world. We sometimes elevate biology, well, this is my physical family. We sometimes elevate the fact, well, I belong to this group of people. Jesus said the greatest of all is his love 
because we're in Him and because you're new family. And I want to say to you again, welcome to the truth. You can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. Look around. We are family because of Christ. Christianity brings a fresh and a new approach to relationships. You know why I say that? It refuses to buy into any form of conditional love. Christianity won't buy into that. It's I love you if. I love you because. It refuses to do that. It rejects the notion that you can only love nice people. It says if you only love nice people, you're no better than an unbeliever. It sees right through the devil's attempt to divide people along racial and other lines. It resists the fleshly desire to treat people according to what they deserve. Now let me say this to you. All of us want to treat each other according to what we deserve. If you are nice to me, I will be nice to you. If you've been horrible to me, you'll get like back. Christian love says, no way. We reject that. That's what Paul is talking about. That's holy living. That's why he speaks in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 about love in such practical terms. And yeah, there you've got it in front of you. I won't read it again. It's there for you. You know it well. I think when Christians are around, they set the bar for what relationships should be like. Holiness elevates Christian love. It elevates love for God. It elevates love for one another. And it elevates love for our neighbor. There's an interesting thing that you will discover. Loving one another will always be an overflow of your relationship with God. It will always be an overflow of my relationship with God. I can see where people are with God by the way they love one another. You see, I can't love you in the way he wants me to until I've spent time with him. Now, what's very obvious here, and I don't know if you've picked this up, is that expressing Christian love is something we need to learn to do. Have you noticed that? You have to learn to express Christian love in different situations. For example, love, Christian love is expressed where there's been hurt and disappointment by the fact that we keep no record of wrongs. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't find I get that right very easy, easily. Have you found that? Have you found that when somebody's really hurt you, it's really hard to forget and keep no record, and I won't hold this against you. But you see, that's why we talk about learning. Yeah, let's go back to my, my guitar analogy again, because it really works well in this situation. When I started learning to play guitar, I thought I was so amped. And somebody blessed me, and they bought me a nice guitar, and I was so excited, and I had the music, I got downloaded my app, took this lovely guitar, and then after two days, my fingers were burning, and it still sounded terrible. And I'm like, 
oh, is this actually worth it? Third day, your fingers are even worse. You know what I discovered? You only learn to play the guitar when you push through. Now, I've discovered as Christians, we just the same. Somebody hurts me. And God says to me, keep no record of wrongs. You know what I do? I say, Lord, it's sore. And it hurts. And you know what I do? After the second week, I throw in the towel. And I never learn to love the way he wants me to love. Because you've got to push through on that stuff. That makes sense to you? And some of us have not discovered what holy living is because we haven't pushed through and learnt the lesson. But then, Paul also talks about holiness in the context of our behavior among unbelievers. And I felt, found what he said quite fascinating. He says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, mind your own business, and to work with your hands so that your daily life might win the respect of outsiders. And I think Christianity brings quite a fresh understanding and, and of, of, of what life is meant to be like in our frenetic, overstressed, and overstimulated way of living. Paul gives us a really nice framework for Christian conduct when we're among people who don't know Christ. By the way, have you noticed that holiness does not mean avoiding unbelievers? It talks about the way we're meant to live among unbelievers. You see, there, there is this notion, well, if I can just extricate myself, I can stay far away from these people, then I can be holy. He's saying actually holiness works in the context of being with unbelievers. You know when you have those great family get-togethers or when you're at work and they're watching the rugby and you know things get a bit blue over there, he said you need to know how to be holy there. That's what he's talking about. And he gives us three tips, very simple one. Here's the first one, lead a quiet life. And I thought, what in the world does it mean to live a quiet life? And then I did some research, and this is what it means. It means not drawing your attention to yourself. It means getting on with what you're meant to be doing. Or if I can put it in today's parlance, it's a selfie-free lifestyle. <laughs> Have you noticed everybody wants to be the center of attention? Living quiet lives. The second thing he says, mind your own business. Have you noticed with social media how we get involved in each other's business? Everybody's got a comment about everybody. It's quite scary. I'll tell you why he says that. Because the primary focus of your involvement should be your own life, not somebody else's. And I, I just want to say this to all of you, and I've had to say it to myself. Be very careful of how judgmental you become of other people, because remember, you're just a sinner saved by grace. And the third thing he said is work hard with your own hands. Have you noticed that holiness honors work? It honors hard work. It doesn't sponge off other people. It doesn't place unnecessary financial burdens on other people. Aha! Or may I put it this way? Christianity doesn't discriminate 
between what people do for a living. If you're the MD or a domestic worker, it doesn't discriminate. The good Paul said at the end of 2 Thessalonians, he said, you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. Then he tells them, this is how I lived amongst you. We were not idle when we were among you, nor did we eat anybody's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we don't have the right to such help. In other words, they were justified in the church supporting them, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. And here's the saying that many people easily quote, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. It's called holiness. Now, Paul points out another truth about this holiness. And I'm talking about proper Christian holiness, not some weird stuff that people call holiness. He says, when you are holy like this, an interesting thing will happen. People will respect you who are not believers. Here's the reason. Your colleagues at work will never see you doing what you're doing today. They'll never see you in church. They'll never see you having an awesome, awesome worship session. They'll never see you praying like you pray here. They won't see you, Elnery, standing on the stage leading us in prayer. What they will see is the way you work. They will see the way that you give attention to your life more than other people. And they will respect you for that. Because that's the part of your Christianity that becomes obvious when you're amongst unbelievers. I want to finish with this, because to me the big question is, how do we get this right? And actually Paul addresses this as you read through 1 Thessalonians 4, and I'm going to take just a few minutes to wrap this up. You see, holiness is the outworking of a number of different things in our lives. The first one is this, living a spirit-filled life. Verse 8, I'm not going to put it, we're not putting it up on the screen because we've read it a number of times. He, he says this, Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? Or you know Galatians 5, live by the Spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Now, a very interesting thing happened to me after I prepared this message. I think it was there for a purpose, which I want to share with you this morning. I just finished preparing. It must have been about a half an hour later, and I was just sitting in my study, just contemplating, reading. And I experienced all I can call was a wave of temptation that came over me. I don't know where it came from. It came like a wave. It was intense. I felt my, found myself struggling with this temptation. And I had to literally pause and say, God, help me. And when I was reflecting on that afterwards, just saying to the Lord, Lord, what's it, what was that all about? He said, the only way you will be able to live the holy life I'm calling you to live is if you learn to depend on me. Friends, you know what I'm talking about. You know those moments of temptation. 
when everything inside you cries out to do it your way, the way of the flesh. And friends, I think we need to learn a whole new lesson about relying on the Spirit of the Lord. That's the first thing. Living holy lives becomes a priority. Here's the second one. When we're living to please God. At the heart of holy living is not legalism, obeying laws, but it's a desire to please the Lord. Verse 1 says, Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please the Lord. Thirdly, holy living rejects the lies and the deception of Satan. Friends, we're still living in a deceptive world. Sin and ungodliness is made to be out to be a good thing. You know what I've discovered? So many people, including me, want holy living to become instant coffee. Because we live in an instant world. I pray this today and tomorrow I'm right. You all know that doesn't work. It's one of the lies of the devil. You see, the truth of God's word is learn to become holy. Learn to put it into practice. Figure it out. Pray it out. Sort it out. The lie of the devil, he keeps telling you, God's failed because it didn't work tomorrow. And trust me, some of you need to find that out tomorrow. You see, unless you're in for the long run, it's called perseverance, and we keep learning to trust and please in God, we're never going to discover the holy life God has called us to. The third one, holy living, sorry, the fourth one, I think. Holy living happens when people know they're going to give an account before God. Now, you might say like, some of you say, I don't believe that. I have been forgiven. I've got news for you. You're still going to give an account. You see, there's a deception that's happened, I think, in the church, where people have said, God's forgiven me. My sins are clean. I never have to give an account. Well, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and ask yourself why Paul says to Christians, one day we will all need to give an account for him for the things we have done, whether good or bad. And there is an account that we need to give before the Lord. So why does Paul say what he's saying? He says, I want you not to have a given, not to have a, to give an account for this stuff. I want you to stand before the Lord and he says, well done. Because you got it. And you worked through it and you learned to do it. And that's what you will have to give an account. God say, that's been great. That's been great. And the last one is putting God first. Putting God first. Holy living always focuses on God. You see, he, God doesn't ask you to be sexually pure because you're going to just mess up somebody's life or your own. He wants you to be sexually pure because it's His will for you. It's about pleasing Him. You see, that's what He's freed us from, pleasing Satan, pleasing self to pleasing Him. So, 
Sexual purity for the sake of God. Loving relationships for the sake of God. The way we live among unbelievers for the sake of God. It's always for His sake. And the trouble is when we live a self-focused, self-centered life and you try and make it for your sake, you miss the boat completely because it doesn't work. It only works when you're pleasing Him. There's two strategies the enemy will use and is using against everybody that tries to be holy. The first one is this. He wants to disconnect what we believe from the way we behave. So it works like this. Let me explain that to you because we're all familiar with it. As long as you say the right things and believe the right things, it's okay. It's interesting. It's interesting and you can sit in a service, or I can sit in a service like this, hear this, give assent to what's being said, agree to what's being said, and go out and do the opposite and not feel bad about it. That's scary. And you know what I've discovered? The first time you do it, it means you're going to do it again. One of the very clever tactics of the enemy, separate belief from behavior. The other one is this. Create a culture of compromise because it costs too much. I've discovered holiness costs because you're going to be different. And we all know that. And you see, we're living in a generation that doesn't want to pay the price. It needs to all be free. And so what does he play on? How much it costs all the time. And we say... It's not worth doing this because it's going to cost me this. And it's a lie. You gain everything when you live a holy life. You are blessed beyond what you can imagine when you live a holy life because you have His favor. What do you want to choose? Your own personal pleasure, the world's pleasure, or His pleasure? Holiness by nature is transformational. When you and I are holy, we raise the bar all around us. We raise the bar in the area of sexuality. We raise the bar in relationships. And we raise the bar because unbelievers stop dissing the church is the best word I can use. They respect because we are holy. That makes sense. I want to pray, then Linda, you can share after that. But I had a sense as we were praying this morning, God wants us to reflect His glory and holiness. Have you ever thought of that? It's His desire that the world would see Him in us because we're His bride and we're His church and He's in us and we're in Him. And this is about us beginning to reflect him as his church and his bride. What I felt particularly to pray for this morning is those who have thrown in the towel. Those who have gone a part way 
in trying to live a holy life and it just didn't work for you and you said, that stuff doesn't work. I want to say to you this morning, that's a lie of the devil. And I'll tell you why it's a lie of the devil, because this he, because the power of God's at work in you. The power of God. Think of this. When he spoke, he created the heavens and the earth, galaxies, Milky Ways. Now his power is at work in you. And I believe what God wants us to do is learn to tap into that, rely on that, discover that. It's the discovery we need to make. I believe God wants His church to reflect His goodness, to reflect His holiness, to reflect His glory. So God, I pray this morning for us as a church. Lord, may we have the grace of Jesus to live the life You've called us to live. May we know and experience and be able to tap into the Holy Spirit's power within us to be able to live the way you want us to live. And God, I pray, may we never be deceived when it says, if the Son will set you free, you are free indeed. Lord, we are not in bondage here this morning. We've been set free by the cross. The price has been paid. The power of the enemy has been broken. And we can be free. And I want to say, Lord, over this church, there is freedom. In Jesus' name, amen.